Welcome to the Data Diaries podcast and this special series on leading through the COVID-19 crisis for visitor attractions executives with your host, Angie Judge, Chief Executive of Dexhibit, Big Data Analytics for Visitor Attractions. Today I am here with Elizabeth Merritt, who is the Vice President of Strategic Foresight and the Founding Director for the Center of the Future of Museums at American Alliance of Museums. Elizabeth, last time we talked was for a podcast episode on the Data Diaries about the future with your work in futurism. How has life unfolded for you since? Uh-huh. Well, I find myself living in a classic futurist event, a disruptive event that has upset all of the trends and launched us into the far corners of the cone of plausibility. So yeah, it's one of, it's like the, the saying, may you live in interesting times. For a futurist, this is very interesting times. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all uh, remove that phrase from our, our uh, bag of tricks <laughs> for the next few months. Tell us a bit about the health and economic situation in the U.S. at the moment. What strategies is the government implementing? Well, uh, once a day, I let myself check the Johns Hopkins University coronavirus tracking map. And I noted that as of this morning, yeah, as of this morning, the U.S. uh, had over a million 371,000 cases of diagnosed COVID-19. And we've had over 82,000 deaths. Mm. And as of last Friday, 21 of our states, as well as uh, Washington, D.C., where I live, and Guam and Puerto Rico, all had stay-at-home orders in place. So they're asking residents to shelter in place. Um, Even in the U.S., in some states that don't have policies like that statewide, the cities have issued similar orders. Now, the U.S. president is encouraging states to reopen, but just this week, some of our top infectious disease experts gave testimony in front of the Senate saying that opening too soon could have dire consequences. Um, But it is up to the states. So despite that, over half of our states have announced plans to reopen, um, even if they're not yet meeting the relatively lax recommended criteria for reopening. So the impact of that has been profound. I just read research estimating that we've already had 100,000 small businesses close permanently um, in in like the last month. And that's like, I think, 2% of the small business population in the U.S. A lot of universities are already saying that they're not going to reopen as usual next fall. They're going to continue online instruction. Uh, public school systems. Some of the public school systems are saying they might reopen, but then I I know a lot of parents who are saying, well, I'm not going to send my kids back to school. And if they don't, then it's impossible for the parents to go back to life as usual because they're being full-time home instructors. So clearly this has a a profound impact on on travel and tourism. Um, The U.S. Travel Association actually came out with a report recently and they were forecasting an over half billion dollar decline in the travel sector. That's nine times worse than the impact of the 9-11 terror attacks. So that gives you a feeling for, wow. the scale, for the scale of what's happening. And what sort of stimulus or support is the government providing? And is there any, any that impacts attractions or museums in, uh, specifically? Well, there are. Um, so, for example, there's a payroll protection plan that... Um, businesses with under 500 employees can apply, could apply for, but it only had so much money. And it was rolled out with very, not very good guidance or procedures for people applying. So it was rather chaotic. So there were a couple of problems. First of all, um, a lot of small businesses and nonprofits felt that they were disadvantaged in, in getting 
those grants um, compared to relatively uh, large organizations or longtime customers of the banks that people were applying for. And the money ran out. Um, so now they're revisiting for, for that and for other plans whether more relief is needed. Uh, one thing that's very um, promising is that a lot of our foundations um, are coming up with additional funds to offer to arts and culture organizations uh, to maintain them. Or they're, they're saying for grants that have already been given, they're saying, well, that was a programmatic grant, but go ahead and convert it to general operating support. Um, and some of the, the federal agencies that fund arts and culture are stepping forward too. I, I just heard that the Institute for Museum and Library Services offer, is offering, um, I think it's $50 million in funding. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, but again, with all the museums in the US, that's only gonna go so far. So yeah. small and valued efforts, but they need to be larger. Yeah, so, so some 35,000 or so, right? Yeah, yes. And uh, what is happening in the industry at the moment? What's the feeling out there amongst our colleagues? Well, essentially all museums in the US are still shut down. Um, a, a very, very few like the Arnold Arboretum, which is in Boston, Massachusetts, never closed. But that's a, that's a rather unusual circumstance. I mean, their director pointed out they have 281 acres, so there's plenty of room to spread out. Um, and he made a compelling argument that staying open was important for the health benefits, including stress relief, that they could provide local residents. Um, we are beginning to see a few museums reopen, uh, including a for example, a few museums in Texas where the governor has started encouraging businesses, including museums, to reopen with certain restrictions. But I think it's also notable that despite that, most Texas museums haven't rushed to reopen when they were told they could. Um, so some have announced reopening dates later this month, but a lot of them are holding off and continuing to push out virtual content and digital content because they're not sure yet that it's the right time for their staff or for their audiences. In terms of attitudes, I think it's fair to say that most museum professionals are very worried right now. Uh, we all experienced the, the very significant financial shock of the uh, um, 2008 mortgage loan crisis and subsequent economic collapse. Uh, and it's already clear this financial crisis will be much worse, so people have a feeling for what's coming. And are you seeing any differences in challenges between different, say, states or, or different types of attractions like museums versus galleries versus, say, zoos? Yeah, yeah, both those things. Um, clearly, different states here in the U.S. face different levels of risk. So, for example, some states like New York and California and Florida have very high numbers of cases. And that's, they're gonna have different challenges in managing and reopening than states like Montana or Wyoming that are relatively, so far have low case loads and are relatively lightly populated. But that, that creates a whole nother set of issues because some towns and regions are trying to restrict travel into their area because they're afraid that people who are leaving hotspots will expose local residents. So yeah, there, there are concerns about whether it's legal or practical to impose travel restrictions. Mm. Now, some states I've been encouraged to see have actually been consulting with museum professionals to, to figure out the difference in risk for different kinds of museums. It, Louisiana issued reopening guidelines and they got very specific. So starting this Friday, they said that um, aquariums, 
zoos and museums generally can open to the public as long as they're at 25% of their capacity, um, which we're discussing, we're assuming it means like fire rated capacity, but they can't have organized tours and they can't have hands-on exhibits. However, they said that children's museums have to remain closed. So they're, they're clearly saying, you know, different people behave differently and there are different risks associated with different kinds of museums. And, and on top of that, individual museums have to assess their own challenges. So some museums we're hearing have very small constrained spaces like historic houses, or they might have dense exhibits or have a lot of interactive exhibits like science centers. So some museums are having to get really creative in planning how to adapt their operations to mitigate risk. I just read this morning that the Witte Museum, which is in San Antonio, Texas, and is preparing to reopen, has ordered 500,000 little plastic pointers for the public to use when they're interacting with digital touchscreens oh, so, so that people don't have to poke the screens with potentially germy Real fingers. practical problem, isn't it? <laughs> And so during times like these, when we look back on significant events like uh, the GFC or 9-11, what are your biggest takeaways from, from those that you're bringing forward into now? Actually, I worry that museums and other nonprofits may take the wrong lessons from the last big financial crisis. In the long run, that shock, which seemed really profound at the time, didn't fundamentally alter the business model for U.S. museums. So some museums may be drawing on what they learned about how to survive financially lean times from going through 2008 to 2012. But when the economy rebounded, they pretty much returned to business as usual. And after the terrorist attacks in 2001, tourism collapsed, but it recovered relatively quickly. And as I cited before in those travel predictions, many experts are speculating this pandemic may have a far more profound and lasting effect on travel and tourism, either due to restriction and some precautions imposed by countries or because of the public's continue, continued concerns about risk. Um, I think we already know that the impact, the global impact of the pandemic is, is far worse in the US, we're afraid that a lot of museums are gonna close permanently in the coming year because they, they simply may not have the financial reserves. They may need to maintain operations in the absence of any income. I mean, when they're closed, they're not making earned revenue. And because people are financially crunched, they're pulling back on their donations. Um, government funding is going to constrict because government tax revenues are gonna collapse. So the museums that do survive and recover I think they may have to rethink their financial strategies, especially because we can't assume this is a one-time disaster. Uh, what experts are telling us is because of climate change and habitat destruction, we're gonna see new pandemic diseases arise more frequently. And, and pandemics aside, I think this disaster has real, revealed how fragile our global business practices and supply chains have become. Mm. So when does the industry feel like it's ready to open its doors again? Is that this quarter or next quarter, or, or are we thinking further out? Well, um, well, it's going to vary from state to state and museum to museum. Um, I have the impression that museums that primarily welcome visitors to large outdoor spaces, so like zoos or arboreta or um, sculpture parks, are feeling pretty good about their ability to implement physical distancing. And there's actually some data that people have said they're gonna feel safer in those big open environments. 
So they might be able to get back more quickly to something like normal visitation, even if there's some limitations, you know, timed ticketing, trying to control the number of people on the space. But museums that are inherently interactive and high energy, like science centers or children's museums, I think they're going to be far more cautious. Particularly, we're still assessing how vulnerable young people are to the virus and also whether and how they might serve as vectors to the rest of the population. I mean, that's one of the problems about struggling on whether to reopen schools. But that, but that aside, there is a tremendous motivation to reopen as soon as it does seem safe because the organizations need to start bringing money in again. A lot of museums have managed to retain their staff in part because of the payroll protection loans from the government or because they're using their financial reserves, but that can't that can't endure indefinitely, um, and they'd far rather be able to reopen and earn money to pay people again than have to institute layoffs or furloughs. And what do we imagine that reopening might look like in the sense of the public getting out and about or tourism returning or other government restrictions like capacity or bans on school tours? What's that going to look like, do you think? Well, first we have to get to that point. And I mean, you've read, I'm sure, the same stories I have saying that it could be a year and a half before we have an effective, safe, widely distributed vaccine. And I don't see how we can have anything like a true recovery of public life, much less museum attendance or travel and tourism until we've achieved that goal. But when people do come back, I think just as after 9-11, you saw heightened security uh, and uh, metal detectors or scans going into museums. Um, some museums have still retained those. Uh, the sorts of things we're seeing museums talk about is are we going to have hand sanitation stations? Are we going to suggest or require that visitors wear masks? Um, are we going to have distancing markers on the floors and maybe one-way flow through the galleries? Are we going to convert doors to hands-free entry? A lot of very granular practical detail about how to both actually reduce risk and make people feel safe. How long do you think that it will take that US attractions industry to recover? Is it going to, are we talking months or years? Is it going to be many years? Well, um, again, I don't think we're going to see the beginnings of the recovery until we have an effective vaccine distributed. But after that, I think it depends a great deal on how much financial damage museums take in the interim. So if they receive substantial support in the next couple of years from federal or state and local governments or from charitable foundations or from individual donors, that would make their recovery much easier. But if museums have to spend down all of their financial reserves, um, they may even potentially begin shedding parts of their operations. Um, museums with more than one site may start shutting down some of their sites. They may stop doing certain functions that don't bring in income. Uh, they might take long-term steps to downsize to reduce their expenses. And if that happens, I think we could be suffering the long-term consequences of this for a decade. Wow. And, and tell us more about the work that you do at AAM and, and how you're supporting museums in the U.S. at this time. I know you're switching to a, a virtual con conference yes, this year. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, we are switching to a virtual conference. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about that. Uh, we're going to start our virtual conference this Monday, Monday, May 18th. 
that's International Museums Day. And then we're going to pick up again on June 1st through the 4th. And we've pivoted our theme uh, to radical reimagining so that we um, can help us all rethink and rework museum practice because some things that worked in the past may not serve us in the future. So we're really excited by the prospect of moving the conference to the virtual space and welcoming more international attendees this year because I hope that um, people who otherwise wouldn't normally travel to the US will be able to join us online. Personally, I'm gonna be giving a session this Monday that explores the post-pandemic future and share some scenarios I've written about what museum financial models might look like after we recover from this crisis. Cool. More generally, what we've been doing at the Alliance to try and help museums through COVID uh, is for one thing, collect and disseminate critical information because everybody's asking, you know, what should we do? What are best practices for something this unprecedented? So we've done, you know, considerations for reopening and guidelines for maintaining standards of excellence in times of crisis. One import, particularly important step we're taking as part of that response is we're foregrounding the importance of diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion because those are values that tend to be set aside in times of crisis. And in the US, the data is clearly showing that communities of color are bearing a disproportionate burden of the damage from this pandemic. And we know that as some museums are laying off staff or releasing contract labor, we're afraid that people who are already disadvantaged um, in their income or their socioeconomic status or their access to affordable healthcare and housing are, are bearing the brunt of those layoffs as well. So what we're seeing in the US is that the pandemic crisis is illuminating and amplifying inequities that already exist in our society and our institutions. And that makes it more important than ever that, that organizations like AAM try and support collective action from the field to center the importance of DEII and protect vulnerable people and lift up the voices of, of people who are disadvantaged in the crisis. And of course, in the US, um, we can't take government funding for granted. It's not baked into the model of how you support museums in the US. So one of the most important things we've been doing is advocacy, uh, making sure that lawmakers are aware of what museums are doing to support their communities during the crisis and <laughs> how much they're going to need to recover. Uh, so we're trying to rally people to contact their representatives and encourage the government to allocate $6 billion specifically for nonprofit museums, because we think that's the kind of money it's going to take to really keep the field afloat. Um, and it's, it's gotten a great response over the past few weeks. Over 40,000 messages have been sent to Congress through our wow. online advocacy tools. So hopefully that will have an impact. And it's such an important message, isn't it? Health and economy uh, very quickly followed by quality of life and culture is an absolute essential to make that happen. Yes. And so what's uh, just one last question from me, one piece of advice that you would put out to global attractions professionals on what they can learn from the US experience. Hmm. Good question. I'm going to cheat and offer two pieces of advice. <laughs> All right. One, one is about the importance of museums as one of the most trusted sources of information in the world to take a leading role in disseminating accurate and timely information in times of crisis and to help people learn about how to assess that information and make informed choices. This is an incredibly important role we play in society. 
But the second, uh, to the point we just discussed about advocacy, is remembering the importance of measuring the impact of what we do. Arts and culture organizations, science and history museums, we do far more good for society than I think most people realize, whether it's providing education or improving health and well-being or strengthening our local communities or bolstering the economy through jobs and tourism. And having strong, consistent, evidence-based messages about the tangible value we provide to society, I think builds a strong case for why museums deserve support in good times and in times of crisis like this. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elizabeth, and for such an informative view of what's happening in the States. And I hope in the uh, weeks and months ahead that that reopening goes smoothly for you all and uh, all the best for the conference on uh, Monday and in June I will be tuning in. Thank you so much Angie for the opportunity to talk about this and I hope in the future that as we reopen we can have happier interviews about how well things are going. That sounds good to me.